Good morning. Question. Are you perplexed by prayer? Are you confused about prayer? We can have many questions about prayer. Right? Why pray if God is sovereign? How do I know if God is hearing my prayers? Do my prayers really matter? Why don't I want to pray more? Uh, when I pray, am I doing it right? The doctrine of prayer is very mysterious. I mean, we're talking about communication with the creator of all things. Well, there's much that we don't know or understand or grasp about our incomprehensible God. And so there's no surprise that there might be some things that we don't know or can't comprehend or grasp about communication with him. Now, the doctrine of prayer, in many ways, is quite complicated. Now, when something is complicated, when you find yourself in a perplexing spot, uh, generally the way to understanding is to return to the most basic part, to go back to the beginning. You're putting together your IKEA furniture, and you're finding that widget A is not fitting right into slot B. You're like, did I do this right? You open your manual. You go back to the beginning. Did I follow the steps properly to get to here? Often you'll find that you made a mistake somewhere. You think about this in terms of arguments with a spouse or with a friend. You're going back and forth. Things are getting heated, and you get to this perplexing place where you're like, wait how, do, wait, how do we even get here? How did this even start? What was that first thing that I said to you that made you so angry? Or that thing that you thought about me that, that I got angry about? You go back to the beginning, and that helps you unravel the complexity. My favorite example of this is computers. There's a bunch of stuff going, in, going on inside computers that I don't understand. My app won't open, or my whatever won't download. What do you do? Well, turn it off and turn it back on, right? Just go back to the beginning, let the thing reset, and often that works out all the bugs. And so what I hope to do today from the scriptures is to offer a restart, a reset for those who have been perplexed by prayer. Now, I'm certain that there are those among us who are strong prayers, who are solid in their prayer life, or at least think that they are, and have not a feeling of perplexity or confusion. But my hope either way is that today the Word of God will either confirm or correct and reshape your current prayer life. So please pray with me now to that end. Blessed, glorious, heavenly Father, who has caused us to know you through the work of your Son, Jesus Christ, through your Spirit, please glorify yourself today by teaching your people how to pray. Amen. So my assertion today is that the prayer in Matthew chapter 6, verse 9 to 13, also known as the Lord's Prayer, also found in a slightly shorter form in Luke 11, verses 2 to 4. This Lord's Prayer is the beginning of all prayer. It is the basics. It is the foundation for the prayer life of a disciple of Jesus Christ. And so I would say further that if your regular prayers are not shaped and flavored by the contents of this prayer, then you're missing something very significant. Here's my primary evidence. This prayer shows up in the Gospel of Matthew in the midst of a discussion about religious practices, giving, fasting, prayer. And Jesus is teaching his disciples how not to be hypocritical or self-righteous as they do these things. And so Jesus says to his followers in Matthew 6, Starting in verse 7, he says, When you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. I don't just start prattling on before the Lord, using vain words, repeating yourself, babbling, being long-winded, and thinking that that sort of activity is going to gain a hearing from God. He says, Do not be like them, those Gentiles, those nations who pray in such a fashion. 
For your father knows what you need before you ask him. The Lord already knows what you need. When you pray, you are never informing God of anything that he doesn't already know. So Jesus is first pointing out some incorrect ways that people could be praying. And then he says, pray like this. And then he gives the Lord's Prayer. He's laying a foundation. In the Gospel of Luke, it's even more clear. The way, the way this teaching comes out there is that his disciples just come to him and they say, Lord, teach us how to pray like John taught his disciples. Like we were hanging out with John's people and they said, yeah, John was instructing us in prayer. Lord Jesus, you haven't done with that with us. Please teach us how to pray. So Jesus says, okay, pray like this. And he goes into the Lord's Prayer. And so the Lord's Prayer is the foundation of prayer for the disciples of Jesus Christ. Now, it's clear from the testimony of the rest of the Bible and the context that the Lord is not saying, just repeat these exact words all the time. Right? There are groups which do this, and, and I, think, I think that's one of the main reasons why we sort of back away from the Lord's Prayer, because some of us grew up, our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name, and so on and so on, and just becomes this rote thing, and we sort of distance ourselves from that. But the poor use of the prayer doesn't devalue the fact that the Lord Jesus said, pray like this. But he's not saying just repeat it. He already said, don't babble on and repeat many words vainly. But Jesus said, this is, like, this is prayer 101. You want to know how to pray, my beloved? This is how you do it. And so if you're perplexed by prayer today, or you're struggling with how to pray, or struggling with prayerlessness, this is where you need to be. Matthew 6, verses 9 to 13. If you have a paper Bible in front of you, you can open there and follow along as I read the Lord's instructions for prayer. Matthew 6, verse 9, he says, Pray then... Like this, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. I want to pull out three major themes that this prayer presents. Theme number one is the proper position of the prayer. Theme number two, proper prayer pursues the promise of God's glory. And theme number three, proper prayer pleads God's promises to his people. The proper position of prayer, of the prayer, proper prayer pursues the promise of God's glory, and proper prayer pleads God's promises to his people. Start with theme number one, the proper position of the prayer. Now, I'm not talking about stand, do I stand, do I sit, do I fold my hands, do I raise my hands, do I bow my head, do I lift my head? You can pray in a, a wide variety of physical positions. That's not so important. What's important is the spiritual position of the prayer. It begins, our Father. And so the prayers of this prayer are the children of God. That is the proper position. But who is it that gets to come before the creator of all things, maker of heaven and earth, and call him father? It's a very particular position. The self-righteous religious leaders of the day, the Pharisees and the scribes, they thought that God was their father. And Jesus corrected them. And he said, you are of your father, the devil. And it was proven them by their works. Scripture in Ephesians 2 states that 
all of mankind by nature are children of wrath following the course of this world, the spirit that is at work in the sons of disobedience. This is all of mankind, every one of us. So how does a child of wrath, a son of disobedience, become a child of God? How can they call God Father? In John 1, Scripture states that to all who received Jesus Christ, to all who believed in his name, he gave the right to be called children of God. That's the glorious gospel that you and I, who were children of wrath through Jesus Christ, can call ourselves rightly and truly children of God and pray from that position. In the book of Ephesians, chapter 1, it says that in love, he, that is the Father, predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ. In verse 7, it says, in him, that is Jesus Christ, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses. That's how you become a child of God. That's how you find yourself in the proper position to pray. And so when you bow your head or fold your hands or bend your knees to pray, remember this one thing. There is no proper prayer without propitiation. You cannot come to the Lord and expect to be heard if your sins are not forgiven. Your sins have made a separation between you and your God. But God sent his only son to shed his blood and to rise again so that all who believe may have free, open, clear, joyful access to the creator as father. This is good news. This is, this is the gospel. This is the glory of the grace of God. Jesus bought your right to, pay, to pray, and it is fully paid for. Start there. That's the proper position. Now note also that the position of the prayer is not individualistic. The prayer opens our Father, not my Father. Not give me this day my daily bread, but give us. Not forgive my debts, but forgive us. Not deliver me from evil, but deliver us. We live in a highly, irrationally, disgustingly self-focused age, and we're all infected with it. And we need to hear this prayer and be instructed by it. The proper position of the prayer is not individualistic. Now, this surely points to the importance of corporate prayer. Like we get together and we pray us, our, join together as a body. But probably even in our private prayers, we should be saying I, my, and me less, and us, our, and we much more. I think if you start praying like that alone, that will start to revolutionize your mind and prayer and even the way that you think about the church. The proper position of the prayer is a child of God with a family mentality. So now we're going to move on to the actual petitions. We've talked about who's praying. But this prayer, the Lord's Prayer, is a prayer of petition. We know there's other types of prayer. Right? There's confession, there's lament, there's adoration, there's thanksgiving. But as Jesus teaches Prayer 101, he only teaches petition. You might wonder why that is. It seems to reveal to me that the most basic function of prayer is the heart's expression of an acknowledged dependence on 
God. We live in a time where people are like, your thoughts change the world, right? Just believe it into existence. Just desire it into existence. You shape how things move by the energy you put out, right? And then we start to almost think like that's how our prayers work, right? I got to pray the world into a certain course. But that's not the primary focus of prayer, what we achieve by it. The primary focus of prayer is that your heart is expressing to the Lord that you acknowledge that everything you receive comes from him. And so you are coming to him to receive it. Jesus clearly says, when you pray, ask the Father for stuff. Petition. But the great significance of this lesson is what he tells us to ask for. That's what we're going to look at in the next two themes. What he tells us to ask for. Theme number two, proper prayer pursues the promise of God's glory. Verses 9 to 10 in Matthew 6. Jesus says, pray then like this. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Three things there that we're told to ask our Father for. The hallowing of his name or the glory of his name. The coming of his kingdom. And the doing of his will on earth. Lord says, ask the Father, that's what you ask for. And what I want you to see most significantly is that these petitions that the Lord Jesus teaches us to pray are based on promises. And they are promises that are pursuing the glory of the Lord. Petition number one, hallowed be thy name. Hallowed be your name, depending on what version you're reading. This is based on a promise. The hallowing of God's name or the glorifying of God's name is the fulfillment of the new covenant which God promised to Israel. Listen to Ezekiel 36, 22 to 27. This is the new covenant. The new covenant which we know if we're reading our Bibles and putting it together well, that this is the covenant that Jesus seals with his own blood. This is the covenant that the death and resurrection of Jesus fulfills. God promises it through the prophet Ezekiel to his people saying this, Therefore, say to the house of Israel, Thus says the Lord God, It is not for your sake, O house of Israel, that I am about to act. But for the sake of my holy name, which you have profaned among the nations to which you came. And I will vindicate the holiness of my great name, which has been profaned among the nations and which you have profaned among them. And the nations will know that I am the Lord, declares the Lord God, when through you I vindicate my holiness before their eyes. I will take you from the nations and gather you from all the countries and bring you into your own land. I will sprinkle clean water on you and you shall be clean from all your uncleannesses and from all your idols. I will cleanse you and I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. This is a promise, a promise sealed and ratified through the work of Jesus Christ. And one that is aimed at vindicating the holiness of the glory of God. He says to the people, my name has been profaned among the nations. Yahweh set his love on these people, and these people are out acting any kind of way, doing any kind of thing, not being obedient, following the ways of the nations, walking into idolatry, acting like pagans. And the nations are looking and saying, those are Yahweh's people? What kind of God is Yahweh? He ain't nothing. 
And God says, wait, wait. I'm going to do a thing, and I'm going to prove to all the nations that I am God. I am the righteous one. I am the holy one. I will vindicate my own name through you. And I'm going to do it by the power of my spirit. And this is going to happen. It's a promise. So all of these covenant graces that Jesus Christ buys for us by his death, forgiveness of sins, cleansing from idols, the indwell, the Holy Spirit to come and live in you and shape you and transform you and make you more holy. The end of that is that the Father would be glorified, that his name would be hallowed, that he would receive all of the praise and the glory due to him for this wondrous work of turning sinful, wretched people into a holy, beautiful bride for his own possession. That he would be rightly recognized and praised and worshipped and adored for all that he is and all that he has done. Hallowed be thy name. This is the end of the gospel. This is the trajectory. This is the end of your salvation, is the glory of God. He's not doing it for you specifically for your ends. He's doing it for his glory. And you get to participate and receive all the benefits of being part of God's own project to glorify himself in the world. This is the end game of Jesus' person and work. The vindicating of God's holiness. The Son of God, existing from from before all time, chose to humble himself by taking on human flesh. And being found in human form, he lowered himself even further through complete obedience to the Father, even unto death, and that death on the cross. And because of that work, God the Father looks upon him and highly exalts him, giving him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee shall bow in heaven and on the earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. That's the end. Hallowed be thy name. Do you want to see that? I want to see that. Do you long for that? Do you come to the Father asking for that? We are instructed to pursue this promise persistently in prayer. The next two petitions are like subheadings to the first one. So your kingdom come and your will be done fall underneath the category of hallowed be thy name. These things are coming for the glory of God. So I'll call the next petition 1A, your kingdom come. This is based on a promise. In Daniel 2, verse 44, the prophet Daniel is speaking, interpreting this dream that Nebuchadnezzar, the king, has about this crazy figure with a gold head and a bunch of different body parts. It says, these things are all the nations, but this is what's going to happen. In the days of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that shall never be destroyed. Nor shall the kingdom be left to other people. It shall break in pieces all these kingdoms and bring them to an end, and it will stand forever. Your kingdom come promised. Now, in one sense, this promise has been fulfilled. In the beginning of the Gospel of Mark, Jesus comes himself preaching, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. The Son of God has come here in flesh, descendant of David. He is the king. The kingdom has now drawn near. For this reason, repent and believe the gospel. In Matthew 12, 28, when Jesus is arguing with the Pharisees and they're saying that he casts out demons by the hand of Beelzebul, he says, if I cast out demons by the hand of Beelzebul, then the devil's warring against himself and he's going to be defeated. But if I'm casting out demons by the Spirit of God, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. 
So in a very real way, the kingdom come promise has been fulfilled, but it's not yet complete. It's not yet finished or consummated. This is sometimes referred to in the Christian circles as the already not yet. Where's the kingdom? Kingdom's right here, right? There are people sitting in this room who are filled with the spirit of the Lord Jesus Christ, who know the Father in spirit and in truth and live in this world for the sake of his name and his kingdom. The kingdom of God exists inside North Shore Baptist Church. But there is another sense where the kingdom's not here yet. Right? Jesus reigns on his throne now and forever, but the full glory and the full perfection of this kingdom is still yet to come. And that reality leads to the next petition, petition 1b. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. O Father, could we on earth see Everyone doing and living according to your perfect will. Just like right now in heaven, the elect angels only and ever do what pleases the Lord and what he commands. And that's, that's the fullness of the kingdom. The will of God being done on earth as it is in heaven. In Matthew 13, verses 41 to 43... The Lord is talking about the end of times, the consummation of the kingdom. And he says of this, the son of man will send his angels and they will gather out of his kingdom all causes of sin and all lawbreakers and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their father. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. This petition, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven, is a ask that is seeking the new heavens and the new earth in which righteousness dwells. The fullness of God's kingdom in all its holy perfection. Makes me think of David in Psalm 19 when he talks about weeping rivers of tears because they don't obey your law. I'm looking out into the world. I know the Lord's law is holy and perfect and good. And I'm looking out and people are stepping on it, defaming it, not giving a care about the glory of the God. And even myself, I'm tripping and stumbling as I'm trying to obey. I'm like, Lord, let your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be satisfied. That's the petition. So we're at halftime in the prayer. So I'm going to give a few applications for this first part, and then we'll go into the second set of petitions. The first application is that you should pray for what is promised. That's the most significant thing that I will say in this sermon regarding prayer. You ought to pray for what is promised. In the book of Luke, Luke 18, there is the parable of the persistent widow. And this parable is put forth all the time as a model of persistent prayer. So what happens is Jesus tells a story of a woman who comes to an unrighteous judge, an unrighteous judge, and she is seeking justice. And she comes to the judge, give me justice, give me justice, give me justice. You don't care. She comes, give me justice, give me justice. And finally, the unrighteous judge says, man, I'm going to give her what she wants just so she doesn't wear me down by her continual coming. Right? And this is the model of persistent prayer. Right? Because, because the Father is not an unrighteous judge. 
the Lord says, hear what the unrighteous judge says. And will not God give justice to his elect who cry to him day and night? Will he delay long over them? I tell you, he will give justice to them speedily. Nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on earth? Notice what she is praying for and what Jesus promises. This parable is not a model of persistent prayer for just anything. We can be persistent in prayer for lots of things and should be acknowledging a thorough dependence on God and a consistent belief in our dependence on God. But when the Lord encouraged his disciples, pray and do not lose heart, he's talking about something that is promised, justice to the elect. It is coming, so keep praying. And then he says, but when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith? Are there going to be those who are crying out to him day and night for justice that they might receive it upon his coming? Pray and don't lose heart. Pray for the kingdom of God and his justice. Pray for what is promised. Daniel in chapter 9 is a great example of this. The prophet Daniel, as he was sitting in exile in Babylon, and he's reading through the book of Jeremiah, and he discovers in Jeremiah that the Lord said that the exile of his people was only going to last 70 years. Daniel goes, "Mm, it's about 70 years. And what did he do? Did he get on his couch and say, well, the Lord said 70 years, so I'm going to chill and it's probably going to come? Nope. He gets down and he starts praying, Lord, bring your promises to pass. Forgive your people. He prayed for what was promised. And thus he could pray confidently. So pray for what is promised. And number two is pray confident prayers. My experience And what I fear is the experience of many is that our primary prayer life is just asking for stuff and hoping that it's God's will. Right? Just come. There's some things that I want. There's some things that I hope will happen. And we don't pray confidently. We sort of pray trepidatiously like, well, God, you know, I kind of want. And maybe if you're on my side or you've kind of ordained it that way, then I hope. You know, that gets tiring in prayer. That makes prayer feel very futile, and we lose our belief in the power of prayer and in the listening ear of God. But this is what we get in 1 John 5. John says, this is the confidence that we have toward him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the requests that we have asked of him. Confident prayer prays the things that are promised. And so you pray with confidence because you know you're going to get it. There are people who enter into prayer with a air of confidence. I believe God for this new job. I believe God for your healing. And as they pray for you or about you, you just think because of their earnestness that maybe they got a word from God that you didn't get, but they're telling you it's coming because they're so confident. I'm not talking about a feigned confidence or kind of a solid guess. You know, I think them cancer treatments going to work for you, sister. I believe God for your healing. I'm talking about confidence that comes from thus saith the Lord. The will of God is your sanctification. So as I pray for the sanctification of my brother, I'm like, yes, Lord, this is what you're going to do. I'm going to come and I'm going to ask for it. I'm confident that I'm going to receive it. The building up of his church. Pray for that with confidence. Why? Because Jesus said, I will build my church. I go before the Lord asking with confidence. That's the kind of prayers that build you up and align you to the will of God is to pray for the things that he said he's going to give. These are the things that give you joy in prayer. Now you can bring your requests, right? Philippians 4, cast all your cares upon him. No, this is 1 Peter 5, right? Cast all your cares upon him because he cares for you. 
But then you got to leave it with him. You got to leave it with him. The confidence of those kind of prayers rests in not that you know the answer is coming because you don't. That confidence comes from trusting that the Lord is a God that's going to do what's right by his people in every circumstance. So I can ask for something, and then I leave it with the Lord. But when I pray according to his will, I'm confident that I'm going to get what I'm asking for. Pray with confidence. Third application is Colossians chapter 3, verse 1 and 2. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. Out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. And what we might find as we think about how we pray is that the things that we're concerned about, the things that we seek, the things that we want, the things that we are persistent about coming before the Lord for are things that are right here on earth. Just the things that are going to make our life a little bit more happy or a little bit more comfortable or maybe alleviate some sadness, right? We, We pray for these things. But as the Lord teaches prayer 101, he says, start up top. Start in the heavenlies. Pray that the Lord's name would be glorified. Pray that his kingdom will come. Pray that his will will be done. And as you start seeking those things, these things down here start to become a little less significant. Not that God doesn't care about every little thing that is worrying you and stressing you and concerning you cares about your wants and your needs. But what he wants you to do is to be looking up to him and not dwelling in the stuff down here. As you pray, where's your head at? In the second half of the prayer that we're about to get into, the prayers do kind of come down to earth in a sense. These are prayers that we probably pray more often more naturally because they're focused on us and on our needs. And I want to say that this is not bad. Jesus says, pray like this. But as we go into this second half of the prayers, I want to show you again that the things that the Lord is saying pray for are things that are promised and things that are aimed at the glory of God. So here we've come to the third theme. Proper prayer pleads God's promises to his people. Verses 11 to 13, give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. So there's three petitions. Give us this day our daily bread, forgive us our debts, deliver us from evil. First one in this group, give us this day our daily bread. This is a petition asking for that which is sufficient For the day. It's basically saying, Lord, always give us what we need for each day. Give us what we need for today. This is something that is promised. Psalm 34, verse 9 says, Fear the Lord, O you his saints, for those who fear him have no lack. If you are a child of God, you have no lack. You might perceive some lack. You might have a sense that you don't have everything that you need, but scripture says you are wrong. You have everything you need. The Lord is working all things to your good at every moment to shape you in the likeness of Christ for his glory. And in order to achieve that, you have everything you need for that right now. You got all the ingredients, and every day he's going to keep giving you everything that you need to grow in the grace and knowledge of God and to glorify God in Christ's likeness. Matthew 6, verse 31 to 33. The Lord says, Do not be anxious, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles or the nations seek after all these things. But your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. 
But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added unto you. Will be added unto you. It's a promise. You don't have to worry whether or not you're going to get fed every day. You're not going to have to worry whether or not you're going to have the clothing on your back that you need. You're not going to have to worry that you're ever going to be lacking anything that is going to contribute to your living to the glory of God. They will be added to you. And so this prayer, give us this day our daily bread, is not a prayer that is worried about daily provision. It's a prayer that is exhibiting before the Lord your trust in him and your dependence on him. When my children come downstairs in the morning and they say, Daddy, can I have something to eat? The reason why they ask is not because they doubt my willingness to feed them. It's not because they doubt my ability to feed them. It's because they know in this relationship, the way that this works is I ask daddy for food and boom, food. So they come with a confident position in their asking. And that's what we can apply that to all of these positions, all of these petitions rather in the prayer. That's the relationship we have before the Lord. He has already stated a disposition to give you the glory of his name, the coming of his kingdom, the doing of his will on earth, and the provision of your daily bread, and the deliverance from evil, and the forgiveness of sins. In this relationship, what you do is you come and you ask the Father, dependent on him and trusting that he's like, yes, son. Yes, daughter, here. That's what prayer is to the glory of God. And then we receive it. We go, thank you, Lord. At least we ought to. Right? My kids get the breakfast and they turn, they walk away. I go, what do you say? Thank you. I don't know how many times I've had to do that. What do you say? Thank you. What do you say? Thank you. What am I doing there? What I'm not trying to do is train them that when they receive something, just to have a knee-jerk response that utters the word thank you. What I'm trying to train them is that when they receive something, they ought to have a heart that responds in thankfulness and thereby says the words, thank you. I start with just the words, but I'm trying to instruct the heart. I think that's how this prayer works. He says, pray like this. Hallowed be thy name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done. How often do you wake up in the morning? That's your first thought. Man, I wish, I hope that God is glorified today. Oh, I just woke up with a raging desire to see God's kingdom. We're weak. We get easily distracted by other things. We forget those things. And then it's just like, oh, Lord, my leg hurts. Would you please help my leg? Oh, Lord, my friend is in trouble. Please help my friend. Dependence, right? Amen. But that's not what Jesus said you need to be focused on, the foundation of your prayer. And not just so we would say the words. Not just so when you pray, you'd say, our Father who is in heaven, hallowed be thy name. But that that would condition your heart to desire the coming of the kingdom and the hallowing of his name and all the other petitions that we have in this prayer. Next one is forgive us our debts. Forgive us our debts. This is a promise. Right? One, it just rests on the character of God. The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love. Keeping steadfast love for thousands and forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. Of course this is a God that you can come to and say, forgive us our debts. And the Lord promises it. In Jeremiah 31, another description of the new covenant ratified in Jesus' blood, the Lord says, I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sins no more. It's a promise. And so you can come to the Lord banking on that. In John chapter 3, right? God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. And then verse 18, whoever believes in him is not condemned. 
Whoever believes in him is not condemned. Whoever believes on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave his life for your sins and rose from the grave, is not condemned. Jesus, by his sacrifice, has secured our forgiveness. The children of God have no debts before the Lord. We don't need to doubt that. But the Lord Jesus says you got to ask for it. Right? We have an experience every day of sinning against the Lord and feeling a debt before him. And Jesus says, keep coming back to the Father. Lord, forgive us our debts. This is promised. And as we recognize the receipt of this forgiveness, we will turn in praise and glory to the Father. In Revelation chapter 5, right? these are, these are the final and enduring songs of the saints. Worthy are you, Lord Jesus Christ, to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. To him who sits on the throne, God the Father, and to the Lamb, the Lord Jesus Christ, be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. Amen. Lord, forgive us our debts that we might praise you for your mercy towards us. Now this petition seems to have a condition, right? Forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. But it's not a condition. It doesn't say forgive us our debts if we forgive our debtors. It says forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. So it's not stating a condition, it's stating a reality. In the new covenant, God's people get new hearts. And these new hearts are hearts that see the forgiveness of God that has been laid upon them. And then they look at those who are sitting against them and they find it in their new hearts to say, how can I hold this debt against this one when I have been forgiven this massive debt against God? That's the reality of a child of God. It's not always expressing itself in its fullness. Sometimes we got to struggle with some unforgiveness in our heart. But the general disposition of a child of God as one who has been forgiven is one who forgives. And so this prayer, forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors, is asking the Lord to fulfill his promises and confirm the reality. I have already, we have already been changed to a degree where we can forgive those who sin against us. And now, Lord, fulfill your promise as you have made us new and we are yours and you said that you would forgive our sins. Can I have it, please? Confirm your works in us. Next petition. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. This is a promise. God not going to lead his children into evil. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 13. Scripture says to us, No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful, and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. He will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. Children of God, your father will not lead you into sin. He does not lead you into sin. Whenever there is a temptation, there is a way of escape. He always provides it. Romans chapter 6 verse 14, sin will have no dominion over you. Sin will have no dominion over you. If you are in Jesus Christ, sin does not own you. Sin cannot make you do anything. It has no dominion. John 8, 36, if the Son sets you free, you will be free indeed. Children of God, you are free. You are free from 
the consequences of sin in terms of judgment, there's still lots of consequences that come from sin. You're free from the eternal consequences of sin. You're free from the judgment that would come from the righteous judge because of sin. You are free from the shackles of sin. It doesn't always feel that way. We can begin to lie to ourselves against the testimony of Scripture and say, I just can't help it. Right? I'm just stuck in this sin. This sin is just mastering me. No, it's not. Scripture says you are free indeed if you are in Jesus Christ. You yourself still have the freedom to walk into temptations, right? To sort of close your eyes or close your ears to the testimony of God and just go do what it is you want to do. But Scripture says you're free. You don't have to do that. By the Spirit, you could turn and walk in the other direction. This is a promise. And this is what the petition is seeking, is seeking the Lord's protection, is seeking his sanctification, is seeking his help to put sin to death by the power of the Spirit and walk in a new direction. Deliver us from evil. He has done it. He has done it, and he will do it. And then we can say with the psalmist in Psalm 23, he leads me in paths of righteousness. Why? For his name's sake. Glory to God as he turns you from your sin and walks you forth in righteousness. Matthew 5 tells us to let our light shine before others that they may see our good works and do what? Glorify us? No. Glorify the Father who is in heaven. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil is a petition based on a promise that leads to God's glory. And that is proper prayer, pleading the promises of God that he has promised to his people for his glory. And so I'm going to do my applications again because I want you to hear them again. This is, this is, the, this is the meat right here. This is what I want you to go home with. This is what I want you to start injecting into your prayer life today and forever is these basics that our Lord himself taught us. Number one, pray for what is promised. Pray for what is promised. Another famous prayer text is Luke chapter 11, which is where we find the Lord's prayer. And then the Lord continues to go on talking about prayer. We hear the friend at midnight, right? Which one of you has a friend that when he comes to your door knocking and asking for bread because he's got some visitors coming in, won't you get up and give him some bread, right? Because of his impudence. Like, well, he's coming and knocking and he's not going to stop knocking. And my house is going to be shamed if I don't help my friend out. So, yeah, I'm going to go give him the bread. And then the Lord turns from that and he says, but look at the father, Look at what the father is like. He's not just a friend at midnight. He's the Lord. He says, I tell you, ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds. And to the one who knocks, it will be opened. What father among you, if his son asks for a fish, will instead of a fish give him a serpent? Or if he asks for an egg, we'll give him a scorpion. If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the Heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? This teaching gets misused. Oh, ask, ask and you shall receive. Seek and you shall find. Knock and it will be open. We just apply it to anything. Sort of giving the idea, well, if you just pray before the Lord and you're just earnest enough about it, or you just really care enough about it, you believe the Lord for it, then he's going to give it to you. It's not what this is saying. The end of this prayer, the knocking, the seeking, the asking, what is it that you're knocking? What is it that you're seeking? What is it you're asking that the Father is promising to give? The Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit who works sanctification in the children of God. The Holy Spirit who brings conviction of sin and brings repentance and confession in the lives of God's children. Jesus is saying, ask for that. Ask for that. And if you ask, 
100% guaranteed the father's going to give it. Number two, pray confident prayers. Pray confident prayers. John 16, verse 23 and 24 is a verse that sometimes turns us on our heads. We don't know what to make of it. The Lord says to his disciples, In that day you will ask nothing of me. Truly, truly, I say to you, whatever you ask the Father in my name, he will give it to you. Until now you have asked nothing in my name. Ask and you will receive that your joy may be full. Whatever you ask in the Father's name, or whatever you ask the Father in my name, he will give it to you. So a YouTube video, there was a guy on there trying to disprove Christianity, and he says, watch this. In the name of Jesus Christ, Lord, give me a Lamborghini. Oh, no Lamborghini, no God. A complete misinterpretation of this verse. This verse is not saying, if you pray and then say, in the name of the Lord Jesus, that that is going to get your prayer answered. This is saying, whatever you ask in the name, according to the authority of Jesus, according to the will of Jesus, according to what he has planned and set forth for his kingdom, whatever you ask according to that, in the name of Jesus, as a representative of Jesus, before the Father, you will get everything that you ask in that position. What are those kinds of things? Hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done. Give us this day our daily bread, forgive us our debts, deliver us from evil. These things you ask in the name of Jesus Christ, for he himself gave himself to secure these things. And you go there and you bring it to the bank and you say, Father, let me receive. And Jesus says, whatever you ask that I have promised, that I have set forth, in my name, ask it and it's yours. So you can pray with confidence. And Jesus says, why? So that your joy may be made full. So that when you receive the fulfillment of these promises, you could say, praise you, Lord. You are faithful. You heard me and you answered. You were true to your word. Hallelujah. That your joy may be filled. Pray confident prayers. Then the third, Colossians 3, 1 to 2. I'm not going to read it again. Set your mind on the things that are above, not on things that are on earth. As you get down to pray, your first consideration should be moving towards who God is, what he is doing, what he is seeking, and trying to align your heart with the work and the will of God in prayer. That's why the Lord says, pray like this. Our Father who is in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. These are the types of prayers that are designed to bring revival to your soul and delight to your heart. These are the types of prayers that may bring revival to a church or a neighborhood or a nation. I have not today exhausted the doctrine of prayer. Right? This does not eliminate the other types of communication with God. Thanksgiving, lament, adoration, confession. These things also belong in your prayer life. But as we pray... Let us never, never forget the basics that is handed down to us, prayer 101 in the Lord's Prayer. Jesus said, pray like this. Oh, Lord, Lord, would you glorify yourself in the hearts of your people through the receiving and the hearing of your word, would you transform us and shape us and shape our desires and our wills to be in line with yours, that we would see and rejoice in the coming of your kingdom and give all glory to you. 
Amen.